Well, allow me to add my word of welcome to you all. I'm delighted that we have an opportunity to take a look at the book of Genesis together. And as a way of helping us get into this series, I want to share a little something about our home life. In our living room, we have a bookcase, and on that bookcase, there are three very important books. And every so often, one of my kids will go over to the bookcase and they'll pull one of these books off the shelf, and they'll sit down on the couch and begin to page through it. These books are their baby albums. And what they find when they open those books is first and foremost, they find letters from Jenny and I to each one of them. Letters talking about how excited we are to be their parents and how we're looking forward to meeting them for the first time. And then as they move through the book, they suddenly start to see the pictures, pictures from the day they were born, the day they were brought home, and the first couple weeks and months of their life right up to their very first birthday. And interspersed among those pictures are, again, notes. Notes from us saying how excited we are to bring them home. And the things that we're noticing about their personalities even now at such an early stage. I think the reason why my kids like to do this is because they have this innate human desire, like all of us, to know where we come from. There's something about connecting with our beginnings that helps us understand our place in the world and in our families and what story we're a part of. And so I think that's part of the reason why they love to flip through these. But every once in a while, they'll go over to the bookcase and instead of pulling their baby album off the shelf, they'll pull down our wedding album. They'll start to flip through and see the pictures from our wedding day. And then they start to ask other kinds of questions. They ask questions like, how did you and mom meet? When did you first start dating? How did you know you wanted to marry each other? What was life like before I was born? And so on and so forth. And again, it's because we have this curiosity. We want to know how we came to be, where we come from, what was happening before we showed up. We, we have this desire to ask these deeper questions of why. And that's part of why we're looking at the book of Genesis. Because not only is it the first book in the Bible, but it is a book of beginnings. That's what Genesis means. It means beginnings or origins. And what it tells us is it tells us about, yes, the worlds that we live in, but it also tells us about us and our purpose and why we're here. And specifically, as we begin this series, I want to focus on something that we get just at the very beginning. I'm actually indebted uh, to another pastor. I was listening to Tim Keller preach on this passage, and he said, even before the beginning, there were three things that were already there. There was God, darkness, and love. God, darkness, and love. And that's actually what I want us to, to look at as we begin this series together. The first thing that we see when you open the book of Genesis, you read its very first line. It says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. What that tells us is that our world and our universe has a creator and a designer. What that means is that there's a purpose behind our existence. And this is important because we actually live in a world that increasingly denies this. Uh, people say we're here kind of by random chance. It's basically math and a bunch of atoms colliding with one another, and it's all happenstance. And what that means is that there is no inherent meaning to life. And I think initially we think that that's liberating. But we miss the danger in, in proclaiming that. I actually think of something that Dostoevsky said. He said this, he said, if there is no God, then everything is permitted. Now, he wasn't writing that as a celebration of human freedom and our ability to write our own destiny. He actually was very afraid of that idea because what he understood and what I think we tend to miss 
is that if there is no God, if there's, if there's nothing by which everything else is judged, then there's no purpose or, or ability to talk about things like right and wrong, good and evil, justice and injustice, inherent human rights, which span all cultures and all times and places. All that we're left with is what Nietzsche said. He basically said, if God is dead, then every other truth claim is nothing more than the will to power. What he meant is that good and evil aren't things that are woven into the fabric of creation. They're simply determined by whoever's in charge, by whoever can seize power and hold on to it. And it's whatever their definition is, is the thing that will reign. We can't talk about human rights. We can't talk about inherent good and evil, justice and injustice, because there's nothing to judge those things by. There's no purpose to our existence other than what we ourselves choose to define. But what Genesis proclaims is that actually there is a designer. There is an author and a creator, which means that our world, much more importantly, us and you and me, we have a purpose. We're here for a reason. And it's only in rediscovering that purpose that we're actually going to experience life the way it was meant to be lived. Uh, it's, it's by actually operating within God's design specific, uh, specifications that we are most fully alive, right? Uh, it's like if I had a computer, uh, the only way I'm going to know, number one, how to operate it, but what it's for is by looking at the owner's manual, which was written by the, the people who designed this device in the first place. If I were simply to take a computer and try to build a workbench uh, with it, I'm not only going to not succeed in my goal of building a workbench, but I'm probably going to do violence and damage to the computer because it's not a hammer. It's not a saw. It's not designed to, to build those things. It's designed for a totally different purpose. A and life operates that way as well. I mean, think about a fish for a second. A fish is most fully alive when it's actually swimming in water, when it's operating according to its design. Now, the moment you liberate that fish from the water, what ends up happening? It dies. Why? Because it's, it's being told to live in a way that it was never designed to live. It's being forced to live in a way that, that violates the, the reasons why it was created and what it's for. It is most fully alive when it's operating within the bounds and toward the purpose for which its creator made it. That's what Genesis is telling us. Not only is life not meaningless, but it's full of meaning and purpose. And we're only going to be fully alive when, when we ourselves are living the way that God designed. Because the alternative to that is darkness. That's the second thing that we learn when we look at the book of Genesis. It tells us that there was God, but also the darkness was over the face of the deep. And this term for darkness is, is a pretty important one in the Bible. The noted Old Testament scholar Derek Kidner said this, he said, It is a term that is used elsewhere to mean in physical terms a trackless waste, emptiness, and chaos, and metaphorically what is baseless or futile. What he's saying is he's saying basically your two options at the beginning of Genesis is God or emptiness. God or chaos, light or darkness. Because without God, everything else starts to fall apart. In fact, that's the reason why darkness is often used in talking about judgment throughout the Bible. 
One of my favorite examples of this is in the Exodus story. God's people are enslaved to uh, are enslaved in Egypt and God sends Moses to liberate them and Moses comes to Pharaoh the king of Egypt and he says let my people go so that they might worship Yahweh that they might worship their God. And Pharaoh asks Moses a question. He says, "Well, who is Yahweh that I should worship him?" And what follows is a series of plagues, but all the plagues are designed to actually answer Pharaoh's question. And specifically, the last two are important to note. The last plague, the tenth plague, is the plague of the death of the firstborn. But right before it, we get the ninth plague, where it says the darkness covered everything. A darkness which could be felt. This thick darkness. You see, what God is saying to Pharaoh's question is he's saying, I'm the God who holds all of creation together. And when you turn your back on me, life begins to decay. It all falls back into darkness. That's the danger of turning our backs on God. Life begins to fall apart. And, and we see how this is true, that when we, when we turn our back on the things that are good for us, that we're naturally wired to do, our, our very lives begin to unravel. I mean, just think about going to your annual physical, right? Your doctor starts to take all of your measurements and says, oh, you know, your cholesterol's a little high. And so you probably need to stop eating these kinds of foods and start eating this kind of food. You need to, to change your diet and exercise a little bit more. Maybe there's certain medications you need to take to start to get your body back in balance. And we ignore the doctor's guidance to our own peril, right? Because our, our bodies are designed to, to be nourished in certain ways, fed in certain ways. And when we violate that design, our bodies literally start to break down. And that's exactly what God is saying is he's saying, look, when you turn your back on me, your life begins to unravel. Those are the consequences of sin. We tend to think of sin as breaking just arbitrary rules, but that's not at all what the Bible means. Sin is about turning our backs on the God who loves us and made us. And when we go our own way and we cut ourselves off from the author of life, it's no wonder that the rest of life begins to fall apart. But we do this all the time. We try to craft our own purposes for ourselves, or we buy into the wider messages that the world tells us about who we are and why we're here. And we do so to our own detriment. I think one of my favorite movies is the movie Gattaca. It's this uh, awesome film in which Ethan Hawke and Jude Law play these two characters, and it's set kind of in the future, at a time when uh, people aren't just born, they're designed. Parents can actually choose what uh, color their children's eyes will be, or what their hair will be like, or what physical attributes they'll have. They can determine what their aptitudes will be, if they're going to grow up to become a great musician or an athlete. It can all be written into their genes and into their DNA. And the result is that there's this new stratification in society between the genetically perfect and just everybody else. And Ethan Hawke's character is one of these people who's just born naturally. Now, he's brilliant and has a desire to become an astronaut and go to the stars, but because he doesn't have the right genetic pedigree, he's left just washing floors. And until he meets Jude Law's character. Jude Law's character is one of the genetic elite, but there was an accident that left him paralyzed from the waist down and in a wheelchair. And so he comes up with this plan. He's willing to donate his genetic material to Ethan Hawke so Ethan Hawke can pretend that he's one of the elites and, and kind of get into their society. And uh, there comes this moment as they're getting to know each other where Jude Law wheels over to Ethan Hawke and, uh, and he looks him in the eye and he reaches into his pocket and he pulls out 
an Olympic medal. Uh, it's the silver medal for swimming. And he holds it up to Ethan Hawke's face, and Ethan Hawke says, that's nice. And Jude Law says, nice. Have, have you even looked at it? Did you notice its color? It's silver. I was not designed to stand on the second place on the podium. You see, he'd been told his whole life that he was designed to be a gold medal Olympian. And he'd bought into that story. And the moment that he lost it all, all he was left with was despair. In fact, we find out later on that the reason he's in a wheelchair is because he tried to kill himself. He tells Ethan Hawke, I was perfectly sober when I stood in front of that car. Never been more sober in my whole life. I guess I couldn't get that right either. You see, when we are disconnected from the purposes that God has for us, something else is going to fill that void. But the problem is, is that not only will it not ultimately satisfy, but when we don't have it, when we don't achieve it, all we're left with is darkness and despair. Every single one of us, apart from God, is like that. Which is why the third thing in the opening lines of Genesis is so important. We're told that the third thing that existed before all of creation was love. This is one of those details, which again, I'm really grateful for, for commentators for highlighting. Uh, they note that when you actually look at the description of God and God in these opening pages of Genesis, we learn that there's God, the Spirit of God, and the Word of God. One God in three persons. This is something that actually the Bible tells us throughout its pages, is that we worship one God, but He exists also in three persons. Three persons who are in constant relationship with each other, which means that the God who created everything is at his core a relational being. So what was relationship with this God like? Well, what we're told is that it's loving. Now, now here's what I mean by that. We, we've tend to kind of cheapen the word love in our society today because we throw that word around a lot. We say things like, I love pizza, and I love Netflix, and I love my spouse. Now, honestly, I don't think my wife would find it very flattering to know that she ranks somewhere between pizza and Netflix, but, but that's how we kind of cheapen this word, right? But, but love, when we look at God, is something so much deeper and more profound. We actually get a glimpse of what that relationship within God was like before the foundation of the world by listening in on Jesus' prayers. One of the final prayers that he prays is in John 17. And I want you to listen to what he says. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh, to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Jesus is talking about everything that we've been talking about so far. He says, if you want to have life, you need to know God. You need to know the Father and the one whom he has sent. But, but that, it's that final sentence that really stands out. Jesus says that before creation, God the Father and God the Son were glorifying each other. Here's why that matters. In the biblical sense, what, what it means to glorify something is that you hold that thing as infinitely more important than yourself. Jesus is saying that before the foundation of the world, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit were glorifying one another. 
What that means is that at the core of God is a self-giving, self-sacrificing, radically other-oriented kind of love. This is why we can trust him with our purpose. Because he is a God of extravagant love. It's actually out of that loving relationship within God that all of creation is made. His love is woven through the fabric of everything that we see. And it's that very same self-giving love that he gives to us, to you and to me. How do we know? Well, because we see it on the cross. The moment Jesus is crucified, what we read in, in the Gospels is this. It says, from the sixth hour to the ninth hour, darkness covered the land. Why is that detail so important? Because on the cross, Jesus took the darkness of our judgment so that we might receive the light of his life. Jesus came into a world that had turned its back on God, not to condemn it, but to rescue it. And in fact, it's while he's hanging on the cross that he looks down on the very people who are cursing him and spitting on him, the very people who tortured him and nailed him to that wood. And he says, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. He laid down his life and the darkness fell upon him so that we might be welcomed into the light and life and love of God the Father. More than that, Jesus rose again from the dead to show us that he'd overcome darkness and death, that he'd overcome our sin and our rebellion. And all this was done because he loves us. I love how C.S. Lewis puts it in his book, The Problem of Pain. He says, For in self-giving, if anywhere, we touch a rhythm not only of all material creation, but of all being. For the eternal word, Jesus Christ also gives himself in sacrifice. For when he was crucified, he did that in the wild weather of his outlying provinces, which he had done at home in glory and gladness from before the foundation of the world. And as the Son glorifies the Father, so also the Father glorifies the Son. And it's out of his fullness that we have received grace upon grace. The Bible tells us that the God of love, who made everything that we see, entered into this dark world once more in his love in order to bring us back to himself, to rescue us. And that if we're going to find our purpose, it starts by knowing him. And as we move through the book of Genesis, yeah, we're going to learn a little bit more about our purpose. That's why we want you to come back. But it starts here with knowing the one who not only made you and sustains you, but the one who saved you and rescues you. The one who in his love calls you his own and welcomes you back into the dance. The one whose love is woven through all that we see. And that's part of the reason why we pray with the psalmist. We wait in hope for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. In him our hearts rejoice, for we trust in his holy name. May your unfailing love be with us, Lord, even as we put our hope in you. And so as we end this message, but start this series, I want to pray that we would see God with fresh eyes so that we might also learn to see ourselves and our world through his. Let's pray. Lord God, we give you thanks that in your love you made everything. And what that means is life is not meaningless. It is full of purpose. But more than that, it means that we are precious in your sight. And we know that because you entered into this world to rescue us, it is your light, your life, that gives life to everything. 
And so, Lord, we pray that as we move through this journey together, we would once more behold you. And that in coming to know you, Lord, we would indeed have hope, peace, joy, and most importantly, love. It's in your name, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that we say, Amen.